Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Longtime listeners will know this. They will actually know it more than once. <laughs> it's become a tradition for us to do a couple of episodes at the end of every year, recapping all the various stuff that's been literally or figuratively unearthed over the past year. Those are our unearthed episodes that have become listener favorites. And this started with prior hosts highlighting a few cool discoveries, and then it grew into a pair of episodes. And then last year in the early spring, it became clear that we had way too many discoveries to possibly do justice to, even if we only picked the very, very, very best ones of them. So we polled our listeners uh, to ask what we should do about this conundrum. And overwhelmingly, you all said you wanted an unearthed episode in July. So now that is a tradition as well. And today we are going to talk about some of the biggest unearthy headlines from the year so far, most of them touch in some way on a past episode because I know those are the ones that a lot of folks have asked about so far this year. And then also, we hope there will be more big headlines between now and December for us to talk about. I think it's a time. safe bet. It seems to be the case. Although, disproportionately, what we're going to talk about, all this news broke in April. Not all <laughs> of it, but like, there's a lot of April in this outline. Way back in 2013, we did a two-part podcast on the Lions of Tsavo, a pair of man-eating lions that terrorized the crew building the Uganda Railroad in 1898. And it is not typical for lions to develop a taste for people, but that seemed to be what had happened there. Uh, so there's been a lot of speculation into why exactly these two did, killing and eating 135 people according to legend, but closer to 30 based on more reasonable estimates and available evidence. During that episode, we talked about one theory that the lions were having problems with their teeth and that dental pain was what drove them to behave in such an unusual way. In April, researchers from Vanderbilt University published a study in Nature Scientific Reports titled Dietary Behavior of Man-Eating Lions as Revealed by Dental Microware Textures. This team worked with the Field Museum of Natural History, which is where the lion's taxidermied remains are housed, to do a microscopic analysis of their teeth. Their research examined both Tsavo lions and a third man-eater from Zambia, the Mafui lion, which is also in the field collection. Those are taxidermied, by the way. Uh, they were pursuing the theory that all three lions were driven to atypical feeding behavior by a shortage of food. If their teeth had wear patterns similar to scavenging hyenas, it would suggest that they were eating whatever they could find and eating as much of the carcass as possible because they were desperate. Instead, though, their teeth looked more like the teeth of lions that are housed in zoos, which are usually fed meat off the bone rather than whole carcasses containing bones to chew around and through. Their teeth didn't look like they had been chewing on any bones at all, which uh, raises a question in the account of the Savo lions uh, because witness testimony included that they were terrified by the sound of the horrible, horrible crunching. Uh, seems a little in question at this point whether there would have been horrible bone crunching. Yeah, well, I think we should point out that in the the man who wrote the primary account of the the primary English language account anyway of the Lions of Savo, he also mentions that he can hear them purring, 
uh, from inside his tent when they are nearby, and that is not a thing they do. So there no. were there was some embellishment. Uh, researchers already knew that at least one of the lions of Savo had severe dental disease, while the other had injuries to its teeth and jaw. And the research revealed that the Mafui lion from Zambia had structural damage to its jaw, meaning it probably had painful teeth as well. So this research suggests that tooth pain might have had something to do with triggering all three lions' man-eating behavior, and that all three were eating only the soft parts of the bodies, not the bones. A lot of the articles that were circulating about this in April, including a lot of the ones that listeners sent our way, made it sound as though this was a brand new discovery. Like the mystery had finally been solved. Uh, but this is more like an, another additional check in the more likely column of things that we already suspected. Yeah, there, uh, because that was such a, a unique and terrible situation when those lions killed so many people, there have long been a lot of, uh, historians, animal behaviorists, et cetera, both theorizing and doing research in it. So. Any research that ex- that comes up at this point tends to build on all of that and or right. confirm or deny some of those theories. <laughs> yeah, we keep we kept getting tweets and stuff with links to articles and I kept thinking didn't we talk about that then? <laughs> Speaking of taxidermy, in November 2014 we did a podcast on the Vero brothers, which was one of those shows that we thought was going to be kind of lighthearted, but then it went down a very dark path. Jules Vareau and his brothers were naturalists who collected and preserved specimens that are still in museum collections today. They're also the namesake of the Vareau's Safaka, which is an adorable primate from Madagascar and was, in fact, what led Holly to want to do the episode. Uh, however, then we learned that they also dug up the body of a recently buried human being in Botswana. They stole it, they preserved it, and they tried to make it into a museum piece. All of that was horrifying, gross, and racist. And in that episode, we also talked about a diorama that they created in 1867, then known as Arab Courier Attacked by Lions. And it's basically what it says on the tin, a taxidermy display of a courier riding a dromedary being attacked by lions. It's <laughs> kind of a, you, you get exactly what we tell you we're giving you. Uh, <laughs> this taxidermied piece is part of the collection at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. In our episode, we talked about rumors that the courier in this piece was a real human being. And at that time, those rumors had been dismissed, uh, although it was suspected or even known that the head was known to contain some real human teeth. But in late 2016, the diorama was removed from its display for restoration. And a CT scan on the head of the mannequin... We're using mannequin in air quotes because it revealed that it was not a mannequin at all. It was an entire human skull. As often happened in our unearthed episodes, what happened in late 2016 did not become widely known enough for us to hear about it until this year. The restored and reinterpreted diorama, now known as Lion Attacking a Dromedary instead of Arab Courier Attacked by Lions, was returned to display on January 28th at which point the contains a real human skull part made a lot of headlines. Yeah. Uh, Because it contains actual human remains, the Carnegie Museum considered what its next step should be. And at this point, though, it's not really possible to repatriate the skull because there is no paper trail to pinpoint exactly where it came from. And as we know, based on what happened in Botswana, the Varos were not above stealing things. Uh... 
lying about it. Yeah. So <laughs> a lot of problems. They, I would not expect us to ever discover the magical document that reveals to whom that skull once belonged. No. And museums are, I mean, not, not a hundred percent of the time, but ex- increasingly becoming more thoughtful about what to do when it's discovered that they have human remains that need to be repatriated. And this is just a case where like the skull, no one really knows where it came from. And now speaking of human remains, <laughs> in at least one previous unearthed episode, we have talked about mass burials uncovered on the University of Mississippi Medical Center campus. In 2014, at least a thousand bodies were found in an area that was being prepped for a, an expanded parking facility. These and other bodies previously discovered on campus probably date back to the Mississippi State Lunatic Asylum, which opened there in 1855. At that time, the expansion plans were put on hold because the estimated cost to exhume the bodies and bury them elsewhere was $3,000 per body, or $3 million total. In May of this year, though, the university announced a possible plan for these and other bodies that are still buried on campus, an estimated 7,000 of them total, For the cost of about $400,000 a year over eight years, the university could theoretically preserve the remains and construct a memorial complete with a visitor center and a laboratory. This still seems somewhat tentative uh, with the university looking for an approach that is respectful as well as offering opportunity for scholarship and being something that they can actually afford. Yeah, it's uh, it would be based on all of the releases about it that have come out so far, something that would combine an opportunity for scholarship on the history of this asylum and the people who died there, while also trying to be uh, considerate and compassionate about the fact that these are human remains, a a lot of cases not ones that can be identified or returned to families at this point. Uh, We are going to take a completely different direction and uh, a moment after a quick sponsor break after which we will continue with some more things. Way on back in January of 2012, previous podcast hosts Sarah and Dublina did a two-part podcast called H.A. Holmes and the Mysteries of Murder Castle, which immediately became a listener favorite. H.H. Holmes was a pseudonym for Herman Webster Mudgett, who terrorized the 1893 World's Fair. He's commonly called America's first serial killer, subject of the book Devil in the White City, generally famous scary serial killer man, also made an appearance in the TV show Timeless. Also made an appearance in American Horror Story. Also making a forthcoming appearance in a major motion picture, theoretically, it has him. been announced. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the one episode that I, I wish I could have done and other hosts had not already done it because I love that crazy business. Uh, Holmes was hanged and purportedly buried in Holy Cross Cemetery in Pennsylvania in 1896. But there have always been rumors that he evaded execution and that he faked his own death and that someone else had been hanged or at least buried in his place. But news broke once again in April that a Delaware County, Pennsylvania court issued an exhumation order on March 9th. We posted about this on our Facebook page, and a lot of people were asking why anyone would even bother with that at that at this point. And it's that the exhumation uh, request 
was made by two of Mudgett's great-grandchildren. They want to prove through DNA evidence whether it really is him and put all of this speculation to rest. The anthropology department at the University of Pennsylvania uh, was named as providing the DNA analysis that would be required. This exhumation proved to be a challenge. Mudgett's specifications for his burial were that his coffin be buried twice as deep as normal and encased in cement, specifically to keep anyone from digging him up. So as of right now, no results of this exhumation have been released, but the Delaware County Court gave a 120-day limit for the returning of the remains to their resting place. So this means that we might get to talk about H.H. Holmes again in our year-end unearthed episodes, if at that point we know conclusively whether that is his body or not. Yeah. And uh, knowing what a famed figure H.H. H. Holmes has become, the court order specified, quote, no commercial spectacle or carnival atmosphere shall be created either by this event or any other incident pertaining to the remains. So, yeah, don't, don't go throw a party in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, p- please do not rush Philadelphia and try to be on hand when things go down because they don't want it and they will send you away. So, uh, moving on. In June of 2016, we did a two-part podcast on Harriet Tubman, in which we talked about her work with the Underground Railroad, her time as a spy during the Civil War, and her dedication to helping people who were less fortunate than she was for pretty much the entire rest of her life. In February, Swan Galleries announced that it would be auctioning off a newly discovered photo of Harriet Tubman, one of just a handful of photographs known to exist. The photo came from an album belonging to Emily Howland, a friend of Tubman's and a fellow abolitionist. In this photo, Tubman is estimated to be in her early 40s, meaning that it would have been taken not long after the end of the Civil War when she was living in Auburn, New York. This is much younger than most of the other known pictures of her. On March 31st, we already get an update about this thing we had flagged. It was announced that the photograph, along with 43 others, were acquired by the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture and the Library of Congress. They had to work together basically to cover the asking price in the auction. Uh, The Smithsonian and the Library of Congress together paid $161,000, which included an auctioneer fee of $32,500 for the album. The museum announced that it would first see to the care and the conservation of the album and then digitize the photos in it so that other people would be able to see them. The Harriet Tubman Home in Auburn had also launched a fundraising effort, hashtagged Bring Harriet Home, raising $27,000 and anticipating an auction price of $20,000 to $30,000. From an outsider's perspective, this seems to have caused a bit of a conflict between the Smithsonian and the Harriet Tubman Home, with the Harriet Tubman Home disappointed not to be a part of the Smithsonian's purchase, but relieved that the album will be part of the Smithsonian collection and will be cared for. Yeah, the the amount that they raised, that, like that wasn't their estimate, the $20,000 to $30,000. It was the estimate of what people thought this was going to go for in auction. So the amount that they raised would have been enough had that been what it actually went for. But instead, the the going price was so much higher. Um, so I I get the impression that there are some hurt feelings, <laughs> hurt feelings about not having been part of it, which are totally understandable. Yeah, although... Uh, but- 
it makes me wonder, like, between $30,000 and, what was the number, 161 Yeah. there's a lot of space. So there was bidding of other entities that aren't right. even part of either of these two. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and in the end, there were statements that were like, the really most important thing is that this is in the Smithsonian's collection and not like in the hands of a private collector where nobody can ever see any of these pictures. Yeah. Um, which are not just of the one of Harriet Tubman. There are also historically important ones in there as well. Uh, as seems to be the case in almost every Unearthed episode that we do, we have an Utsi update. Hello, Utsi. Good to see you again. Uh, Utsi the Iceman was a subject of a January 4th, 2012 episode by previous hosts of the show. And since then, it does seem like there has been a new discovery about him in almost every Unearthed episode that we do. So we have yet another update. A number of theories have circulated about how Etsy died, many of them speculating that he came to some kind of violent end. And there's plenty of evidence for this, particularly an arrow wound in his shoulder and some evidence of head wounds. However, in April, research presented in New Orleans at the annual meeting of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists suggested otherwise. Based on x-rays and CT studies of the site of that arrow wound, Anthropologist Frank Rulli of the University of Zurich argues that it was a shallow injury that wouldn't have involved a lot of blood loss or tissue damage. And he argues that those head wounds look more like Utsi tripped and fell and hit his head on something and not that he was clubbed or bludgeoned to death. So the new and sort of boring hypothesis is, in fact, that he simply froze to death. Not as exciting as a violent end. Well, and that was always on the table of options. Yeah. uh, At least according to this researcher, the more violent and maybe exciting stories are not as likely. Uh, The Lost Colony of Roanoke has been the subject of a 2008 episode and a 2012 update, both by prior hosts of the show. And for folks not up on your North Carolina or early colonial history, The gist of the story is that colonists arrived on Roanoke Island in the summer of 1587. John White left the colony to return to England for supplies, and when he got back three years later, the colony was deserted, with the word Croatoan carved into a post as the only clue as to what had happened. In Unearthed in 2015, we talked about two different teams reporting two different sets of findings about two different theories as to what happened. One team looking for clues on the North Carolina mainland was following evidence from a map, conducting an excavation at a spot known as Site X. And the other was excavating near Cape Creek on Hatteras Island and found a number of 16th century English artifacts. In April, once again April, Smithsonian Magazine reported a setback in the trail that had led at least some archaeologists to focus their search on Hatteras Island in 1998. Archaeologists had found a ring that was engraved with a lion. A jeweler had determined that the ring was made of gold, and an expert in heraldry linked the lion image to the Kendall family, who had been involved in the voyages to Roanoke in the first place. However, this year, a lab at East Carolina University tested the ring using an X-ray fluorescence device and determined that it is not made of gold at all. It's actually made of brass. And rather than an heirloom belonging to the Kendall family, it actually seems more likely to be a mass-produced piece that would have been used as trade goods with the indigenous population of the island. 
So there continues to be a lot of debate about this particular ring and what it might mean. And for the last 20 years, some archaeologists really thought this whole Kendall connection was already a stretch. Others argue that its brass composition doesn't change much about its importance. And archaeological work on Hatteras Island is still ongoing. This is one of the very long, enduring mysteries (laughs) of the colonization of North America, so I am sure people will be continuing to look for the answer yeah. until they find it. <laughs> and also those fires stoked once again by American Horror Story. <laughs> uh, I did not see this entire season of American Horror Story. I did. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. I know a lot of people didn't like the shift in how it played out, mm-hmm. but I thought it was quite fun. And I was I, really... I will basically show up to um, the reading of a seed packet if Kathy Bates does it. Sure. With bliss in my heart. So I don't care what she does. I'm watching it. Uh, <laughs> um, before we move on to our next thing, we are first going to pause and have a little break for a sponsor word, during yeah. which I will think about Kathy Bates reading seed packets. Sounds great. Katie and Sarah's past episode on Pompeii's destruction following the eruption of Mount Vesuvius dates back to 2009. We have an update. In May, it was announced that a pair of bodies uh, that were buried and preserved in that eruption that have always been described as the two maidens are, in fact, men. And this discovery says as much about assumptions as it does about the bodies themselves. The assumption that the two bodies were women was largely based on their shape and posture. The interpretation has generally been that they were embracing one another out of protection or fear. But after CAT scans and DNA analysis, researchers have concluded that they are, at least in terms of their, like, their chromosomes and their mitochondrial DNA, they're both male, not related by blood, and about 18 to 20 years old. And this has led... To a bunch, a bunch, ubiquitous, almost, (laughs) headlines that the two men may have been gay lovers, which is weird because they were not described as possibly lesbians when people thought they were both women. So at least according to what seems like every headline about this, as two men, they are possibly or probably gay, but as two women, they were just gal pals comforting one another as the volcano buried them. Definitely nobody has speculated that maybe they were bisexual. It is all 100% made up at this point. Well, right. So my big thing is like, no one can embrace unless it's sexy. Like I, that. Well, particularly no men, one, like no m- maybe they're embrace- scared they're about to die by horrible right. means. I would embrace almost anybody nearby, whether I found them attractive or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I obviously have found the news coverage of this discovery really irritating. Uh, because it's number really one, weird. like it's been framed as a way as though that is scandalous. It only seems like it says more about what our expectations are about how men should behave with one another than anything relating to history at all. It 
Yeah, there's there's like this weird overlay that it must have sexual context that is not supported in any way. It's weird. Like you said, yeah. it's weird. Yeah. Uh, on a happier note, however, this episode is coming out right around July 4th. Uh, we know that a lot of people will spend that day in recreational activities involving cookouts and drinks. So here are some unearthed libations. <laughs> uh, this seemed like just a a little bit more fun way to cap off this episode. Yeah. Um, in Norway, during the Viking Age, we have learned people brewed beer using stones. And this knowledge comes from archaeological research at 24 different farm sites in central Norway, all of them having the same fire-cracked stones and all of them having local lore that they were brewing stones. So the stones themselves were not news, but the fact that they were used this way as long ago as they were, pretty new knowledge. Basically, in the days before iron pots, People made beer not by heating the cooking vessel, but by heating a stone in the fire. And then they would drop that stone into what they were trying to brew, which would rapidly heat the water, but also cause the stone to crack. In addition to Norway, this same practice was apparently used in England, Finland, and the Baltics before the development of iron cookware. And now I will think of the story Stone Soup in a completely different way. That's a great point I hadn't even thought of. (laughs) It's actually stone homebrew. <laughs> well, and there are there are apparently some specialty brewers where you can uh get stone brewed beer, which is really fascinating to me. <laughs> More on the drinking habits of Vikings, new research is also suggesting that they were brewing wine in Denmark, or at least that there were grapes that were grown in Denmark during the Viking era that could conceivably have been used for making wine. We found evidence of the grapes so far this year. We have not found evidence of winemaking itself, but the discovery that grapes are being grown in Denmark that long ago is actually notable. Previously, it was believed that grapes didn't exist in Denmark until later on in the Middle Ages. If the Danish Vikings were making wine, it was probably because they had discovered the beverage in Roman territory and grew to like it. I'm imagining... Vikings being like, this was good. Let's figure out how to make this at home. <laughs> Do the, will the rocks work? <laughs> it maybe. Uh I I know way less about how to make wine versus how to make beer. Uh in a more modern story in March, Israeli archaeologists announced that they had uncovered hundreds and hundreds of liquor bottles left behind by British troops during World War One. Based on the number and the variety of bottles, which were not just liquor bottles, they included gin, beer, and wine bottles, among other things. The conclusion is that they probably came from an officer's mess, not from the supply for enlisted men. And there is talk currently about putting those bottles in a museum. I've seen pictures of them. I have not found a picture of them that we can actually use on our website, so we'll, there will be links in the sources where you can see them, but it's... It does look like quite a lot of bottles. It could be a whole museum just of World War One. World War One hooch. Yep. <laughs> and last but not least, students at the Stanford Archaeology Center have made beer based on a 5,000-year-old Chinese beer recipe, and they did so as part of a course called Archaeology of Food, Production, Consumption, and Ritual, which was taught by Li Liu, 
professor of Chinese archaeology. The recipe itself was uh, reconstructed based on residue from the inside of pottery vessels, and it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences last year. It is probably the same Chinese beer discovery that we actually talked about in Unearthed in 2016. Yeah, we talked about a surprising discovery that there was barley in China earlier than we believed and used in beer making. Um, the student work is really interesting. It's going to be continued to use a sort of a reverse engineering look at how the Chinese were brewing beer that long ago. Um it, I'm I'm not sure how much sampling of the beer <laughs> there may be because part of the description and the making of it talked about like opening it and there being kind of a moldy substance, which sounds yucky to me. Even as a person who uh, has on more than one occasion brewed beer in my home and I know that it can make gross looking appearances uh, <laughs> that are not actually dangerous or bad for you. Um, I'm still fascinated by the whole thing and kind of tickled that college students are recreating 5,000-year-old Chinese beer. So that's that's unearthed in the first half of uh, 2017. I had a moment where I was like, <laughs> I what understand those moments. I have them a shocking amount of the time. Uh, do you have listener mail from the first half of 2017? <laughs> I sure do. I have listener mail that's related to our recent podcast on Annette Kellerman. Uh, it is a point that I thought about making in the episode. And then didn't, so I'm glad somebody wrote in about it. This is from Gabrielle. Gabrielle says, hey, ladies, I just listened to your podcast on Annette Kellerman, and I had to write in. I'm a high school world history, sociology, and gender studies teacher, as well as a swim coach. I swam competitively for 15 years from summer league teams to the collegiate level. Currently, in addition to coaching two teams, I'm also manager of a pool. Needless to say, I have worn a lot of bathing suits. However, I completely took my one-piece suits for granted. Your podcast combined my passion for history and swimming as well as gender equality. Annette was incredibly brave to wear what made her comfortable while swimming despite how scandalous it seemed to the rest of society. She broke down barriers in the sport of swimming, and I am grateful for her contributions. After listening to the podcast, I searched for pictures of Annette and her bathing suits. I immediately began to think about the transformation of competitive swimsuits in the past decades. Below, I've attached a picture of the Australian Olympic team about 100 years after Australian Annette transformed the one-piece. Surprisingly, the two suits are pretty similar. Both have full leg coverage and sometimes even sleeves. This coverage is not for modesty, as Annette's was, but for speed. Today, however, men and women cannot compete in a bathing suit that comes past the knees because they have been found to be too fast and buoyant. Swimmers who compete in open water swimming can wear full wetsuits, on the other hand. So, uh, she... Talks about the absurdity of men swimming the English Channel nude, which is something that we talked about in the episode. Uh, Gabrielle goes on to say, I loved hearing about the transformation of swimwear and women in sports and leisure. This was a topic I completely overlooked. As someone surrounded by history and swimming, it would seem as if I would know more. I would know everything about the sport. After this podcast, I am itching to know more. Thank you for your entertaining Thank you for entertaining and educating me on my commute. Keep up the awesome work. Thanks, Gabrielle. And then, yes, uh, many pictures of um, swimmers, especially competitive Olympic swimmers in the last few years, do resemble pretty well uh, Annette Kellerman's swimsuit with the more coverage in part to try to make them faster in the water. Um, so thank you so much, Gabrielle, for writing in about that. 
If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. Our Instagram is MissedInHistory. One day I'm going to memorize a shorter way to say all that. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to find out all kinds of information about archaeology and the past, anything else your heart desires. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to find show notes for every episode Holly and I have ever done together. We will have the links to uh, where we found out about all these unearthed things today. We have a, an archive of every episode that we have ever done. All kinds of cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 